Before they were engineers, many of the creative minds at LEGO were kids who received a special gift, leading them down a path to build worlds at LEGO. This year, spark curiosity and start your holiday traditions at the LEGO store. With millions of unique sets available for the special person on your list, there's something for everyone. Every gift has a story. Start building your story today. Learn more at lego.build slash vox. That's lego.build slash vox. And welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vandorf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. And this week we're talking to one of my favorite people in the TV industry. I've been talking to him for years and years and years. One time we sat at a DuPars in Studio City for like three or four hours and just talked episode by episode about season three of Parks and Recreation. I'm talking about Mike Schur, one of the smartest guys in television, one of the smartest minds in TV comedy. He has worked on so many shows you love. He was on Saturday Night Live for a while. He wrote on The Office, many of its best episodes. He is, of course, the co-creator of Parks and Rec, which is why I was talking to him about that. He's the co-creator of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's worked on Master of None. He's got an upcoming show called Abby's. But the show that you probably are most familiar with of his right now is The Good Place, the wonderful NBC sitcom about people who discover they're in the afterlife. And I'm not going to spoil anything about it beyond that, because if you haven't seen it, you should go watch it right now. The first two seasons are on Netflix. The third season is currently airing on NBC with its finale coming up very soon. So I wanted to have Mike in. I didn't want to talk to him about The Good Place necessarily. I wanted to do something different, which is I know he has a lot of thoughts on what makes TV comedy work. And I wanted you to hear those thoughts because I think, you know, when you get the promotional interviews, it's just like, what's going to happen next on The Good Place? I'm like, I kind of don't want to know that. I kind of just want to hear why he thinks his shows work, why he thinks other shows work. I just wanted to get into the philosophy and the theory of comedy because if anybody, if anybody in the television industry is somebody I think is interesting, it's Mike Schur. So he joined us. I think you're really going to like it. Stick around. My guest today, Mike Sure. Hi. Mike, it's so good to have you here. And I, I, I promised you when we came in, uh, this is just a challenge for myself. I'm going to ask you one good place question at the start mm-hmm. and one at the end. So here's the one for the start. If I know you when, you, when you came into the show, you had some vague ideas about where things might head in future seasons. Now that you're three seasons in, how closely have you kept to that and how much have you sort of wandered off the map? Well, I don't know that we had three whole years at the beginning, we sort of go year by year. Mm-hmm. I would say that every year, the general plan that we have sort of laid out at the beginning has pretty much been the plan that we've executed with a couple little exceptions internally, like episode by episode, it doesn't always sort of stay on the same course. But generally speaking, we knew what the first season was. We stuck to that plan. When By the time we started season two, we knew what that season was. We stuck to that plan. Like there are a couple things Okay, so in the last, I'll give you an example. The last episode that aired, the crazy multiple Janets episode, mm-hmm. there's a revelation in that episode that no one has gotten into the good place in 500-something years. That revelation originally was appeared in the episode in season two when they are in the bad place and they're pretending to be bad place people, Rhonda and Trent and whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, we shot it, and it was a conversation that Michael had with Sean where Sean gave him that information that no one had gotten into 500 years. And then we were like, man, there's so much going on. (laughs) Like that's too, that's too much stuff. Like there's too much, it's too much to handle for the audience. We were asking too much of the audience to try to like figure out what that meant. So there were things like that, that we laid in that we had like, okay, this is a thing we will learn at this moment. We've then cut and re reintroduced later at at a more optimal moment. But generally speaking, I would say the plan that we have, sort of concocted at the beginning of every year has been the plan that we've executed for that year. Hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, you now, no more good place questions no more. the end. We're never going to talk about the good place again. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I do, I do kind of want to like, I, I wanted you to come in because I want to talk about comedy theory, comedy philosophy, right. if you will. <laughs> and like, I just kind of want to think about the idea of what it means to create a TV comedy that can run several years. You've worked on some that have run several years. You've created now three that have run several mm-hmm. years. So you know something about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, like, when you look at comedies that work that you didn't make, 
Like, do you find a common denominator in, you know, everything from Cheers to Mary Tyler Moore to like The Simpsons? Yeah, of course. There's multiple, I would say, similarities. Some of them are facile, right? Some of them are like, man, that's a good cast. There's no comedy that's lasted for any amount of time that you can't say, boy, that's a really good cast. And it seems reductive, but I don't think it is because this is alchemy that we're talking about. It's not one thing. If it were one thing, a lot of there'd be a lot more long-running sitcoms. About a million things have to go right. I remember thinking my introduction to the world of sitcoms was The Office, right? Mm -hmm. And it was incredibly fortunate and great for many, many, many reasons. Most of them have to do with Greg Daniels and the things that Greg taught me Mm -hmm. and taught Mindy and uh, taught BJ Novak and taught everybody that who worked on that show about how to write. And But I remember at one point, like, the path that show took was fascinating and I became a sort of... Even though I was working on the show, I became a sort of student of the path of that show. And I remember tracking internally all of the things that went right Mm. with that show. And there are so many. I'll give you three examples of things that went right for that show. Thing number one, that show was developed by Kevin Riley, who was running NBC at the time. He'd come from FX and he loved the British show and he was very passionate about The Office. So he gave Greg the chance to basically do it exactly the way he wanted and to basically cast who he wanted. He was very invested in the show. And um, then we made six episodes that first season. And no one liked it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so ordinarily, uh, 99 times out of 100, or maybe 999 times out of 1,000, that show is canceled, right? Right. It's a six-episode experiment. This is back, by the way, when when sitcoms could get, when anything could get big ratings still Mm -hmm. on network TV. So that show is going to get canceled. We all knew it was going to get canceled. There was a moment when when we were shooting the last episode where the cast was sort of huddled outside and everyone was a little bit glum because it was our last week of shooting. And even though the show wouldn't even air for months, everyone kind of felt like there's no way this ever (laughs) works. And I remember Steve looking around at the cast and saying, hey, we got to make six. Like we got six of these things. That's amazing. Like Mm -hmm. what a dream to make six episodes of this thing that's so weird and pure. So... Definitely going to get canceled, except that Kevin Riley kind of like stakes his reputation as a as an, like an executive mm-hmm. and says to his bosses at NBC, I believe in this show. I think it can work. Please, please, please. Like, give me another chance. Give us another season. They give him what was announced in the press as 13. It mm-hmm. was not. It was six. We were given six more for yeah. season two. But they announced it was 13 because if they had announced it as six, everyone would have smelled blood and they would have said, well, it's doomed or whatever. Okay, so that's thing number one. A network executive does something a network executive is not known to do, which mm-hmm. is stick his neck out, right? Mm-hmm. Thing number two, over that off-season, after those six episodes aired that nobody liked, Steve Carell became a gigantic movie star. <laughs> Just totally coincidentally, 40-year-old version comes out, and the world goes, oh, my God, look at this guy. Look how funny he is, and look how kind he is, and look how talented he is. And NBC goes, well, we have this giant movie star under contract, right? So... You know, and, and look, things one and two here are related, right? They partially gave the second season because they had Steve under contract. So network executive six is neck out. Then the guy who's the main character becomes a movie star. Here's thing number three. The guy who created the show mm-hmm. is a first ballot Hall of Fame TV brain. Right. And he says, well, let's look at thing number two mm-hmm. and let's think about how we should take that information and use it for the show. And the way we should is by saying that guy, that character that he's playing in that movie is so empathetic or sympathetic rather and so kind and so lovely. We need to take 20% of that energy and put it into Michael Scott. Mm -hmm. And the writers, his own writers, me included, rebelled Mm -hmm. and said, you're going to ruin it, and this is the thing that Ricky and Steven created is perfect, and how dare you, and the whole point is that it's supposed to be bleak, and Michael Scott's like David Brent is a terrible person, and blah, blah, blah. And Greg patiently listened to all of us and heard us all out and said, no, you dummies, I'm going to do it this way, <laughs> and we're going to just add a tiny little glimmer of hope to the end of every episode. And and he did, and that is the difference between that show lasting 12 episodes and lasting 200. So I say all of this as a way of just saying like, it's not one thing. It's mm-hmm. a great cast. It's a very, very smart person making good decisions. And then it's just stuff that you have no control over. It's mm-hmm. the 40-year-old version comes out. Mm-hmm. And and so I think with every show, I think about Cheers all the time, as you well know. And 
you know, Coach died. Coach is maybe arguably the best character on the show in right. the first two seasons. Maybe the f- most purely funny character on the show. And he dies. And then Woody Harrelson just walks through the door. Woody Harrelson decides to be an actor <laughs> and goes to L.A. and walks into what I believe I've heard was his first audition ever. <laughs> and they find another coach. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's just – it's talented people and a talented group of people with a who are have a, a sort of mind meld and then it's just really good luck. I think a lot of it is stuff you have no control over that you have to just hope happens to you and with almost every show that I've been involved in, I think that has been the case. Sorry, that was a very long no, answer. That to was your great. Question. I loved it. One thing that I I really took to heart about the office in the early days, Ken Levine, the great writer behind he was on cheers he was on mash mm-hmm. he was on frazier a bunch of shows people love he wrote that what he loved about that show i think this is mid-season two was that there is it was a different relationship than he'd ever seen on tv the relationship of the employees to michael specifically like and i'm wondering how much of how much of tv comedy is about the premise and how much of it is about like we have these character relationships and you kind of have to like you kind of have to like smuggle those in under the guise of like a new premise, you know? Yeah, the premise is entirely secondary, in mm-hmm. my opinion. The premise is the thing that supports the relationships, not vice versa. So there is a problem with gigantic premise shows. And I was very cognizant of this before The Good Place, which is the first time I've ever worked on or certainly created a show that had a gigantic premise at its core premises burn off, man. Like, you know, you if you design a show around the idea, what happens often, I think, is it makes for an amazing pilot mm. because the pilot is a movie. It has an incredible high premise and you get a great cliffhanger and whatever, and then the premise just burns off and you're left with not a lot of stuff because you haven't made room for, like, small, intimate character dynamics that are the things that are slow-burning logs that keep the flame going for a long time. So I think the character relationships are primary and the premise is entirely secondary and you know look friends has no premise right friends has literally doesn't have a premise mm-hmm. it's there is an instigation of the show which is rachel runs away from the altar but the premise is some attractive people live in new york which is <laughs> that's about it and the same is true of seinfeld like the premise of seinfeld was some people live in new york so i think if you had to choose one or the other i i hear pitches a lot for shows and um, both like on a, in an actual business way and just from like friends who were kicking ideas around. And it's hard to train your brain not to think about the, a show from the beginning of its premise. It's mm-hmm. very – it's because it feels slippery. It's like how do you – then what do you start with, right? If you don't start with like, okay, this is about a school or this is about a bunch of people who work at a, a Navy base or whatever – it's hard to, to come up with an idea. The Good Place is a gigantic premise, but it started from me wanting to do a show about what it means to be a good person. And I sort of thought like, okay, well, how do you, how do you, how do you judge good and bad? And what is that? That's, I guess that's ethics. And then how would you judge a person's life? I thought of a couple ways to do the show before I got to the afterlife. Mm. So I think if I'd started with like, okay, a bunch of people are dead, now what? I think, <laughs> I don't know that this show would have gone that well. So, yeah, I think it's character over plot 100 times out of 100. Do you remember some of those uh, dead ends you sort of turned away from before you found The Afterlife? Yeah, well, I loved um, Enlightenment. I don't know if you were a fan of that show, but I loved that show so much. It's a great show. Yeah, Yeah, a wonderful show. And Enlightenment was almost – it was basically like an er er-good place, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a decade before I came up with the idea. And I watched that show again, especially the second season. And what's so wonderful about that show is it's a woman – who had some problems, who then went away and and thought that she had solved them. And then the world just keeps creeping back in, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you keep having to, like the it, just the, the basic nuts and bolts of just existence on earth are so infuriating. And she didn't have a great job and she had a difficult situation with her ex-boyfriend and, and you know, just all of this stuff. And her mom is kind of annoying. And so all of that stuff that just grinds you down comes back and she's, and, and chips away at her newfound sort of centered Zen-like existence. And and so I thought, well, maybe you could tell the story based on a person who just got out of jail. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you could say like, I'm, I was a bad person and now I'm a good person. I, I want to try to be a good person. And the idea would be that the life of the pre, whatever the criminal enterprise was that the person was a part of might have kept kind of chipping away. Then I thought, 
of just trying basically ripping off enlightenment and saying a person who like it was going to be about a person who was really into self-help or a person who had like gotten kind of wandered down that path. And that led me to a person who like a person who had gotten really into Buddhism Mm -hmm. specifically and none of it, I mean, I didn't go too far down any of these paths because they're not any good (laughs) and you have to be Mike White to write enlightenment and I'm not. Um, But that then the Buddhism thing somehow led to like, oh, wait a second. What about the afterlife? What if it's literally a person who's dead and whose life has been evaluated and they have a sort of an omniscient system is weighed in and mm-hmm. said a money ball, cal- cold, steely calculation has been made. And it said, you were this much bad. You were this many points bad. Um, and then that suddenly got exciting. So, mm-hmm. but before then it was just, I wasn't thinking premise. I was thinking sort of like person slash situate life, life circumstances. One thing I've noticed in a lot of your shows, including ones you didn't create, but worked on like the office, like you said, they make, uh, Greg Daniels being Michael Scott, a little bit more, huggable for lack of a better word. And that (laughs) made the show better. Mm -hmm. Um, Ron and Leslie on Parks and Rec on a lot of other shows would constantly be at odds. And you very, very early on are like, they're, they still get along. They just have different philosophies of life. You know, characters on Brooklyn Nine-Nine you'd expect to be at odds are not. Even on The Good Place where Michael is a demon, he like gradually (laughs) becomes like a nice guy, you know? (laughs) Um, Do you think comedy, long running TV comedy and antagonists can't really exist alongside each other? Well, um, there's sort of different versions of the same question for me. The thing about Parks and Rec was um, that, you know, we did the same thing we did on The Office. The first season was only six episodes. It was actually even more kind of intense because we were, we didn't do like a pilot and then like test it and like wait around and then fix it and talk about it and revamp it and stuff. We made six in a row. Now that happens all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Now, especially with streaming, people are making just 10 episodes or whatever and then throwing them up onto some service. But at the time, it was very scary because usually you have this like gap where you make the first thing and then you sit around and think about it and you think about what's good and bad and whatever. We didn't have that. So we made a bunch of mistakes. And the mistake, the primary mistake, primary? Is that how you pronounce that word? Primary <laughs> mistake we made was we wanted Leslie Nope to be like a person who's really smart, really capable, and just totally unsavvy about sort of politics. And she was going to try to take on a sort of political system from the inside and was going to fail because she didn't know anything. She wasn't like a cutthroat evil manipulator, right? And what ended up happening is everyone rolled their eyes at her. And we were a little bit influenced by The Office too and people rolling their eyes at Michael Scott. And then what happened is she came off as being like a bimbo or something. That word was actually used, which was so horrifying because – we pitched the show to NBC as like, this is a show about a a strong willed, capable feminist sort of forward thinking woman and her best friend who she makes in the pilot, which is, who is another woman who has like a community project she wants done. And to hear the word bimbo applied to that character was, it was awful. It was truly awful. So we changed the system of the way we represented mostly people reacting to her instead of rolling their eyes they were just like, she's better than we are at this thing. So whatever she says, we'll just do this. They might have their own agendas. Tom Haverford had his own agenda all the time. Mm-hmm. But he also was like quick to admit that Leslie was really smart and good and at her job and he would do whatever she wanted him to. So doing that helped the show a tremendous amount. But it also meant that we had no internal conflict mm-hmm. because everybody everybody just liked Leslie. And Leslie and Ron fought sometimes, but they were fundamentally decent to each other and And so we had no internal conflict and it was like, well, now the point of this is like, this is an us versus them. It's not a A versus B versus C versus D in terms of conflict. It's us versus them. Us is the parks department and them is going to be some other people. And those people could be the citizens who were obnoxious. It could be the library, which for some reason everybody hated. It could be whoever. And so we, we got our conflict through outside invading hordes, right? So that was that model. And that model is, I think, basically the same goes for Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Most of the antagonists to Brooklyn are outside bureaucrats or other detectives in other departments. Like there's a character named the Vulture who constantly swoops in and steals their uh, cases sometimes. Like we've generally found that antagonism works better from outside the unit. And that makes a certain amount of sense. They're a tight-knit team and that sort of thing. So that's one model that seems to work. And it's not revolutionary. It's not like that's the first time we've... There's a joke in Friends I remember all the time where it's a tiny joke, but it's late in the show's run, I think, and the six of them are in... I think they're in um, the main apartment. They're in Monica's apartment, 
and the doorbell rings and they just all like, it's wordless. They just all look at each other. Like, and they're, they're counting each other. Like we're all here. Who could that be? It's a very meta joke, but the point is like, you do that joke because what you've said over however 150 episodes is like, it's these six against the world. Like the forces of conflict, sometimes they come from like friendship stories or romance stories or whatever, but like, Every show at some levels, it's us against the world. And so I, I, you can't do anything without conflict, but you also, the conflict doesn't have to be two people just like like ripping on each other. And mm-hmm. that's that's the kind of humor that I never liked personally. I never liked the the like we are secretly at war or like we're, we're going to make fun of each other brutally and negatively for like 29 minutes and then in the last minute go like ah we're still friends like that uh, that uh, that i've never liked as a method of comedy delivery system what do you think it is that works about something like um all in the family then where they really do sometimes seem like they hate each other you know well first of all it's family right so family you already are like look families are complicated man and every great family show has a lot of that stuff in it has has like you know, moms and daughters and fathers and sons and brothers and sisters and whatever, grandparents and family dynamics you're more forgiving of because everybody has a family and everybody's family drives him or her crazy. Mm-hmm. And also that show was, was about a moment in time, right? That was like a grinding of the gears of, of the sort of greatest generation or whatever you want to – the I guess the greatest generation's parents kind of. Um, I guess well, it's whatever that gen- – whatever you call that generation and their children who were – who were modern and were in some cases pacifists and who weren't racist. So that was about the conflict from that show was, was like the conflict of America writ large or actually writ small, you would say, right? It's like, we're going to take all of these things that have been discussed that are in the world about a sort of like Nixonian generation that sees the world one way and their children who are much more progressive, much more anti-Vietnam, much more whatever, who don't like the fact that their parents are or can be awful about other people. And so it's a very frequently heard thing in Hollywood, which is like, we, like this is the new all in the family or like we need it all in a fa- all in the family or where's all in the family? Why can't we have all in the family? You'll never have it again. It was a moment in time. Like you can't, whatever this year's version of all in the family would look like, it wouldn't look like all in the family because that show was about that moment. Like, that show was about like Watergate era America and it's a fool's errand to try to find it again because it doesn't exist. It was like a singular moment in time by the greatest person who ever did this. <laughs> they, like why uh, the idea of trying to do it again is crazy because mm. you'll never, no one will ever do it. Speaking of family shows, you seem drawn to workplace shows. Is that just because sort of that's what you've done or do you find them more interesting? I, um, when Parks and Rec ended and I was talking to NBC about what to do next, they wanted me very much to try a family show for that reason. And I, I said, uh, I'm a rule follower, so I said I will try. And what I, I came to a certain conclusion at the time, which was I don't have anything interesting to say about my family. I am a, a white man who grew up in the New England suburbs in the like 80s. And the territory that I could cover in a, on a personal basis has been covered a thousand times like the John Hughes movies which were are now 30 something years old are pretty much like what my life was like you know they were in Chicago and I grew up in Connecticut but like it's essentially the same the kind of high school cliques and the this and the that and everybody's white and uh so I was kind of like I wish I had something interesting to say mm-hmm. my parents got divorced when I was nine like does that count as anything I don't think so like there I don't have a lot to say about the family and so that doesn't mean that I can't be a part of family shows I think it means that I shouldn't be writing them frankly mm-hmm. or at least I should co-write them or something or I help should help someone else with a more interesting family tell their family's story but it's really simply because I don't think I have a lot to say about the subject. Like I, I think the best, like one day at a time to me is maybe the best family show that's on TV right now. I love it so much. And that's not a show I can write for very obvious reasons. And I'm so happy that that story is being told. And I'm happy that Mike Royce is a part of telling that story. And if I could do his role mm-hmm. of like helping someone else tell his or her family story, uh, in a compelling way, I would love to. But I don't think that I personally have anything interesting to say about mm. the American family. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
How many times have you in your career sort of thought about either shows that you went a long way with and didn't go forward or like shows that you got to the point where you had to keep evolving it until it was the idea you ended up on? Never, Mm -hmm. weirdly. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, among the many good pieces of fortune, pieces of good fortune rather in my career, I would say tops on the list is like I fell into a path Mm -hmm. that allowed me to skip the line. Mm. Um, and that path was working on the office and then Greg wanting to develop with me. And then at the time, uh, the office was such a huge deal that NBC just said, do whatever you want. Mm. So we came up with a a very non network friendly idea of a small government office in, in like Southwestern Indiana, but they'd already said, do whatever you want. (laughs) So, so that's what parks became. And then I developed Brooklyn nine, nine with Dan Gore, who was the number sort of number two guy at parks the whole time. And because Parks was, it wasn't anywhere close to what the office was, but they trusted me enough at the time, Universal did, that they were like, this sounds good. And there aren't any comedies about a police officer precincts on the air right now. So give this a shot. And then we ended up selling it to Kevin Riley, who at that time was at Fox. And it, and then we got Andy on board and then that sailed through, relatively speaking. And then the next thing that basically the next thing that happened was the good place, which in which I was in a similar position to what Greg was at the time, which is they sort of said, do whatever you want. So I skipped all of the hard parts. <laughs> uh, and that's why actually Greg held my hand and skipped them for me is mm-hmm. the way it really works. So I've never been in the situation that can be the most maddening, I think, which is in what people popularly called development hell. I've mm-hmm. never had development hell where there's like an idea that keeps getting rewritten or changed or people weigh in on it and it has to kind of go through a bunch of iterations. And I've never had to walk very far down the path of an idea and then undo it all or throw it away or anything. So mm-hmm. knock on wood, um, that's the, I mean, it's insane. The, mm-hmm. I, I, I think, uh, I don't know, once a week about how insane my particular path has been through this business. And it's, um, it's, uh, talk about good fortune, like shows have to have good fortune. And I think careers do too. Mm-hmm. And I've had more than my share. Well, how about just, just privately? Like how often do you think, Hey, that could be a show, you know? Um, not, I'll tell you this, not nearly as much as I should, given the <laughs> fact that it's my job. Like I recently saw that someone has a book coming out mm-hmm. and I said to myself, Oh, I really liked that person's first book. I remember reading that a couple of years ago. That was really good. And then like in a flash of almost panic, I was like, why am I not trying to turn that book into a TV show? That's a perfect TV show. And I like have now called my like manager and stuff and said like, can we try to option the rights to that book? And the predominant feeling that I have is what the hell is wrong with me? Like, why did it take me two years? There are people who are uh, very good at this particular thing of looking, Michael Patrick King Uh, who I worked for on the comeback was really good at this. He was good at it with individual episodes. Someone would tell a little anecdote of something that happened to him or her after work. And he would go, that's an episode. Mm -hmm. And very quickly he would like talk it out and spin it out and say, this is what could happen. And he's also good about it for just shows, like just premises, just ideas. And that's not my strong suit. I don't read books or short stories or poems or anything and see the show immediately. Like, and there are people who do. And I wish I had that because uh, it's a very good skill to have, as you would imagine. Like in my line of work, it would be good to have that skill. And I just don't have it. But I feel like now I have to remind myself that I also didn't have it at SNL. When I started at SNL, I didn't, for sketches, people would have it for sketches. They would see something on TV. Or um, I remember Adam McKay was the head writer when I started there. And he, the night that Jesse Ventura became governor of Minnesota... McKay, who is like a world-class improviser, just started improvising a guy who had been away, like a college kid who had like gone on like a year-long hiking trip or something and who lived in Minnesota and who had like had been in the wilderness, like uh, outward bound or whatever, coming back in the day after and going like, so what's happened in Minnesota since <laughs> I've been and his parents were like, oh, you know, there was a big snowfall last week and this happened and the, oh, the Hendersons got a new car and oh, and Jesse, the body Ventura is the governor of Minnesota now. And he just kept improvising this guy going like, no, no, come on, no, no, <laughs> come on. And they were like, no, it's true. And he's like, no. And he just, they just did the bit. He and a couple other writers just did that bit in the office. And then they just wrote it as a sketch and then it went on TV as a sketch. And like, that's like the, the mini version of that scale of just looking at, around at the culture, seeing something and immediately having the good take on that thing. And I don't have that. 
<laughs> what did you find your strength to be then when you were at SNL? Like, um, I took over weekend producing weekend update when Rob Carlock left and I was given that job in part because like SNL is most people's first job kind of, um, like writer or actor. And as a result, like the writers and actors who are there are, are even by writer and actor standards are pretty irresponsible people. Mm-hmm. And I, being a sort of like buttoned up rule follower, I was very responsible as a producer. Like I, I was just very like, when I had something to produce, I just, I kind of did all the work that mm-hmm. was necessary. And that just literally doing my homework essentially put me in the top 1% of all like SNL writers who had ever been at the show. And so they were like, you have to do this job because everyone else will screw it up. Mm-hmm. And so that well, was one of my strengths was just like being sort of on top of things in a way. It's, it's a sad skill to have. Like, I wish I could tell you I was the, I was super funny or a really good, like came up with great characters. I really didn't. I had a pretty undistinguished career, I would say, as a sketch writer. I wrote like two things that you might have remembered in your life. Mm. One of them was during the 2000 election when the world was like hanging on everything SNL did. I came up with the idea. I didn't write it alone. I wrote it with like three other people, but I came up with the idea that Bush and Gore announced that they were going to run the country together like the odd couple. And we <laughs> just did the odd couple opening. Yeah. And because it wasn't particularly amazing, but because the world was going crazy, it's hard to imagine this now, but at the time, that was the craziest thing that had ever <laughs> happened in presidential politics. And so that sketch was shown on like every network around the clock. It was like Big Brother. It was mm-hmm. being played on every screen in America. And then I wrote, um, I worked on those hardball sketches with mm-hmm. Chris Matthews because mm-hmm. I loved Daryl Hammond's Chris Matthews impression. But again, co-written, always co-written, everything co-written. So those are the things that I wrote that anyone might even possibly remember. I didn't have a, an amazing career there. I wasn't nearly as good at sketch premise writing as a lot of the people who were there. I was in the, I would say I was in the lower half, mm-hmm. but I was responsible. And so because I was responsible, I got to run that segment with Tina Fey and Jimmy Fallon. And that was a ton of fun because we were our own little team. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's sort of, it's almost produced like a separate show within the show. And it was a lot of fun. And I loved Tina and I loved Jimmy and we had a really good time. And the, we did stuff that like was silly and we did stuff that felt like meaningful and important. And that was the best part of that job. I'm trying to imagine your wild and rebellious phase and really struggling with it, you know? <laughs> it's because it never existed. <laughs> I didn't, I, I literally didn't, I didn't drink alcohol till I got to college. Oh, wow. Like I, I was one of those kids. Like Me I too, just, yeah. Yeah. Like I, I just never caused trouble. And so um, I was a, a rare kind of SNL, young SNL comedy writer. <laughs> Coming up next, to help inspire your holiday gift giving, we have a very special advertiser message from The Lego Store and shop.lego.com. Check it out. Jake Sadovich is serious about puzzles. For a living, I work at an escape room designing gameplay. And this love of puzzles all started with a Lego set he got as a gift. It was one of the Explorian sets. It was the big uh, space base where the front opened up and the truck came out. Jake loved the way the pieces interlocked, how you could move parts around infinitely. Years later, he found an old ship-in-a-bottle set at a thrift store, and it gave him a crazy idea. I decided I'd go ahead and build it, bottle and all, completely out of Lego. When he finished, he submitted it to Lego Ideas, a platform where fans can showcase builds and vote on ones they think Lego should manufacture. And it was a hit. It was really kind of surreal. It was amazing. I mean, it was getting votes very, very quickly. Weeks later, Jake finally heard back from Lego. They had chosen his design. He was just kind of blown away that Lego's now going to build a set based on your creation. is really kind of overwhelming. But his favorite thing was how people took his puzzle and made it their own. So they build the ship in the bottle set, but they take the ship out and they'll put like a spaceship or flower garden Because when you give someone a Lego set, you're not giving them a set of rules to follow. You're giving them the inspiration to create something totally unique. It's just a great feeling to know that that will help to inspire kind of the next generation of Lego builders to go out and create and do their thing. With Lego, every gift has a story. Start your story today at your local Lego store. Thanks for that message from our sponsor, The Lego Store. To learn more, go to lego.build slash vox. That's lego.build slash vox, L-E-G-O dot build slash V-O-X, or simply tap the link in the show notes to get started.
you have continued to work in network television. Obviously, you, you've worked on stuff that's gone to streaming, but and a lot of other prominent producers at your level are making the exodus from network TV. What do you still love about network TV? And here's here's sort of an addendum to that, which is network TV still makes really great comedy. And like, yeah. that's not the case with every genre that they do on network TV. What, what do you think it is about network TV that works for comedy? Uh, there's a lot. Uh, I think that the, the same things that are very frustrating about network are the things that make it good for comedy. And those mm. things are basically obstacles, right? The reason that if you, if you migrate to streaming as a writer or a producer, you're doing so in part because I would imagine of the removal of obstacles, right? There's no commercials and you can swear and you can show nudity and the episodes can be anywhere from 21 minutes and 30 seconds long to in some cases, 45 minutes long. Um, the world is your oyster and you can produce them at your own pace and you can wait, you can fine tune them. It's a control freak's dream. You can, you can fine tune them until the end of the earth. And then when it's only when they're absolutely in their perfect possible form that you actually show them to people. Right. So, I mean, another reason you might do it is because they're spending a ton of money <laughs> luring people over, but creatively, I think that's most of the pros, right? I would argue that those are all in some ways cons for mm -hmm. comedy. Not so much for drama, although I could make the argument for drama too, but if you tell a comedy writer that her episode can be anywhere from 21 minutes and 30 seconds long to 45 minutes long, that comedy writer is probably going to be closer to 45 minutes long because she has hated editing and cutting jokes that she likes and honing and honing and honing and honing her whole career. And then she gets to a place where they go, you don't have to do that anymore. And she goes, oh, thank God. I'll just, I'll leave in all the stuff I like and then it'll be fine. And so her episode, uh, her seventh episode of her first season is like 28-15. And the truth is, is that it's probably a better episode of TV if it's 23-45 than if it's 28-15 because – Comedy needs pace and it needs intensity and it needs drive and it needs all of those things. And the removal of the time obstacle leads to puffy, pudgy, fat, um, unpleasantly bloated comedy. And it's literally, as my manager David Miner r reminds me all the time, the first rule of like vaudeville era comedy is leave them wanting more. And the problem with streaming is people don't often leave them wanting more. They leave them bloated and, <laughs> and overfed. I would also argue that the removal of commercials, which I no one likes commercials. Everybody hates commercials. Commercials stink. But they force you in your brain to write in acts. You mm -hmm. have to write act breaks. You have to write in a sort of like a sine wave sort of crescendoing and then a kind of a climax. And then you go back to the beginning and you build up the act again and you you get to a big breaking point again and it gives the episodes rhythm and it gives them shape and you hone and you polish and you contour to, to get to the point where the stories are really tightly presented. And then also like, look, Arrested Development in its first couple seasons was one of the first sitcoms to bleep, right? Mm -hmm. Like you didn't, you, before that, I don't remember, there may have been other ones, but before Arrested Development, I remember a lot of bleeping and the bleeping was so funny. Like mm -hmm. Will Arnett cursing and it being bleeped out was really funny and then you go to streaming and you just say whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of less interesting. Like it's less, you have to be less creative to get your jokes across. And so there's so much about network TV that drives me crazy. The number one thing that, that I would trade right now is the actual visual presentation of network TV stinks. Like mm -hmm. you've got an NBC bug in like one corner and then there's a hashtag something because they're trying to get you to tweet about the show. And there's a TVPG block of blackness in the upper left-hand corner and and then there's snipes like The Rock keeps showing up on, <laughs> during Good Place episodes like, oh, The Rock's in this scene. I don't remember him shooting. But there he is on the screen. Um, so there's like the actual visual experience of watching an episode of Network TV stinks. Mm -hmm. But it forces me to like cut everything except the very, very best stuff to tell the best story and the funniest jokes. And we're constantly leaving stuff on the cutting room floor that we genuinely like. And I think that's good. Like, I kind of think it's good. And we make longer episodes for to air on Netflix and stuff and producers cuts and whatever. So all of the stuff we ever shot that I ever liked will be seen by somebody sometime. But I kind of think that 
network TV unintentionally saves me from my worst instincts, I would say, mm. which are to more, more, more bigger, louder, f- like fatter stuff. Yeah. When I sent you the, the email asking you to come on the show, um, one of the, the questions I put in there was, this is something I've been fascinated about, how important setting is to a comedy, which is there are lots of very successful comedies set in bars. <laughs> Cheers and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, two of the quick examples you can think of. It's a lot harder to think of comedies that are set in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, Alice in the 70s and Two Broke Girls is partially set. But you don't think of the restaurant first with either of those shows. And I'm wondering if you have theories as to why some settings work better for sitcoms than others. Well, in that example, I would say bars are communal and restaurants aren't fundamentally. Bars, you can literally, you can create a bar that's essentially a a circle, a table of people sitting around all looking at each other. And bars encourage conversation, whereas restaurants are more private. And, you know, in those two cases, Alice, Mel's Diner, and the restaurant in... um, Two broke girls, like you're focused on the the behind the scenes crew more than mm-hmm. you are the customers. So it's it's an odd thing. It's like um, setting a it's like the love boat, right? The love boat was more about the crew in the in the who worked on the love boat than it was the you know they were guest stars. They would pop in and then be there for one episode and then leave again. But it's like the the most interesting place in the setting isn't where you're setting the show. It's kind of weird. So I, that's a wild guess about restaurants versus bars, and I think it's probably safe to say at some level that the setting is just one that has to be conducive to like people talking to each other, right? Mm-hmm. Like early on in in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, we did a tiny thing, a tiny adjustment, which is we always imagined Chelsea Peretti's character to be a citizen, mm-hmm. was a non-police officer, non-detective who worked, because a lot of the people working precincts are not on the police force. They're just citizens. They're administrative workers or, you know, um, just non-cops. And so we just wanted her to be a non-cop. But it was like, it's hard to explain what that is. And it's mm-hmm. also like, well, what do you, why? <laughs> like, and so like very early on, we designed this after three episodes, we were like, nah, we got to move her over. And so we just made her Holt's assistant. And it's a, it's a tiny lateral move, but it just meant that like her desk was closer to Holt's office. And it was in the same line of sight as Jake and Amy's desks and just tiny, just that tiny adjustment meant she was more a part of the world than she was before that. And mm-hmm. so my guess is that most of what is a good setting is just whatever the idea is of the show, it's the place where people are congregating and they're all in one place. And mm-hmm. if you go back and look at old shows, like I would imagine that what you'll find is there's very few characters, even like shows that are family shows, the next door neighbor is always walking, just walking through the door into the kitchen and making a sandwich because there's no other way to, to get them in the mix. Like right. it's just about people being in the same place in the mm-hmm. same room. So I, I don't know. I don't know if there's any better theory. Um, maybe there is, but I don't know if there's any better theory about like, you know, setting a versus setting B. Yeah. You mentioning that thing about Brooklyn nine, nine, um, you tweak your shows a lot. And I think the difference between a good TV show and a great one is often those tiny little adjustments that are sometimes made on the fly. Like, Parks and Rec, you were introducing things that were really major to the show, like in season three and season four. How late can you change things in a show's run? Like, could you theoretically write up until the finale? Uh, it's a good question. I think you kind of could. I mean, well, I think that you're always kind of writing is basically just tweaking stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You're kind of just always shifting and character dynamics are sort of pushing people in one direction, whether it's like more romantically inclined or less romantically inclined or whatever. I think at some point you have kind of made a deal with your audience. Mm -hmm. And the deal is like, these are the people, these are their relationships. These are the ways they behave. And then you're, you're sort of like improvising a little bit within those parameters. Like I think that the danger is of like constantly tweaking Mm -hmm. is you start to make the audience feel restless. Like, well, I don't know these people. If they're constantly, if, if they can be completely different now than they were at the beginning in fundamental ways, then what have we been watching? Mm -hmm. I remember, um, there's a bunch of examples of this, but like going back to the office, there was a thing that Greg used to talk about, which was, he called it, <laughs> Greg has a lot of theories, uh, but they're all great. Um, but he called it the inverted pyramid. And he basically said like, look, the least important thing on a TV show is one joke said by one day player who shows up in one scene and then leaves, right? 
And then the next level above that would be like uh, one joke said by like a minor character and then one joke said by a major character. And then the ne- then you get to a level where it's like a, a plot line involving a day player and then a plot line involving a minor character, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you go all the way up and at the very top is like the main romantic storyline of the two main characters on your show. And he would say this to say like if someone pitches something that's a little bit crazy or a little bit out of character or or like – fundamentally changes the tone of the show or something. If that thing is a one joke said by a day player, okay, you can if it's funny enough, you can get away with it. it won't nothing bad'll happen. But if that one thing is involves like a gigantic plot line with one of the main characters on the show, like you gotta be real careful because that's one of the fundamental things that people come to the show for, right? So we used to talk about that like with Creed. Like mm-hmm. Creed would say things on the show that were just deeply insane all the time. But it was sort of like, that's okay. It's mm-hmm. Creed. Like, if we wrote jokes like that that were that crazy for Jim, mm-hmm. then you have a problem because then the audience is going, wait, what is happening? Jim's this kind of person now? Like, that's crazy. But with Creed, like, that was sort of fundamentally part of who Creed was. He was a crazy person, right? So I think you could, to answer your question, I think, you yes, you can tinker and tinker and tinker forever. But at some point, you have to sort of say, like, these are who these people are and this is what they act like. And... And if the characters act too much out of character just because you're bored or something, you know, then then you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Danny Arnold, the guy who did um, Barney Miller, said that after I think season two of that show, they had like their core cast and he tried to add new characters to that and it just never took. The audience was like, we know these people. We don't know who that is. Who cares? Yeah, there's a little bit of like imprinting that audiences mm-hmm. do, I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we snuck in under the wire, I think, with on Parks and Rec, for example, of adding Adam Scott and Rob Lowe when we did. Like we, the, we had aired, I think it was because we had done only six episodes that first year. Like they came in after really one season, mm-hmm. not two even though technically it was the end of the second season. But yeah, I think it's hard. And I, again, I think Cheers is the outlier here because if you look at that show, you forget, like, Kelsey Grammer wasn't a part of that show. Like, yeah. he came, he was a new character who then was on the show for eight years or whatever. And the same with Lilith. And, and I mean, there were so many, um, uh, Robin, Con- uh, what's his name, Robin Concord? Is that what his name? Uh, Cole Concord, Cole, yeah. <laughs> They somehow were just magic, and they kept introducing significant major characters over and over again. Rebecca, season five or whatever it was, season five, six. So there, that's that's rare. Mm-hmm. Like that's rare that you can do something that fundamental to a show and and have it maintain its quality. But mm. they were just uh, they were special. Well, that's uh, also I think a function of the setting. A bar, new people come in every night. That's right. Maybe one of them is Frasier, you know? <laughs> <laughs> maybe one of them is one of the greatest sitcom actors of all time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, but speaking of that, like casting, when you are casting a show, what do you look for? Because the supporting players on The Good Place, I was not really aware of them. I knew Kristen Bell. I love Kristen Bell. and sure. Ted Danson, of course. But like, what are you looking for when you're casting people? Uh, again, uh, this goes back to good fortune. Allison Jones uh, cast The Office, Allison Jones and Dorian Frankel and Phyllis, who was on then on the show, and they cast uh, Parks and Rec, and she's the best at what she does. She and her number two, Ben Harris, are the best at what they do in the world. And part of what I realized was great about them is I sort of have a deal with them, which requires a little bit of flexibility on their part and a little bit of flexibility on my part. But I think the system is the best system. The system is basically this. I write the, I, I pitch them the show, and I tell them about the characters. And then I say, look, so here's 15 things about the character Tahani. She's tall, and she's uh, either Pakistani or Indian descent, and she has an Oxford British accent, and she dresses like Grace Kelly, and she's incredibly condescending, but also kind of heartwarming and sweet, and you can tell that there's a sort of like vulnerability, and she had a she had two parents who were miserable to her, and she has a sister who's like Beyonce times, you know, FKA Twigs times whoever times Rihanna, who is more f- amazing than she is, and that's her where her inferiority complex comes from, blah, 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 blah. And then my, the system is I'll basically say, here are the things that are important. Tall, British accent, funny. So if you find, she had to be tall because Kristen is not tall. And part of, I, want, I really wanted part of Kristen's um, dander getting up to be about the fact that her next door neighbor, her f- marvelous next door neighbor was way taller than she was. I just like that visually made sense to me. So I said, look, if you find a tall woman with an Oxford British accent who's funny, who's from South Korea or Japan or 
Venezuela or any place that isn't America, great. Like, I'll rewrite the character. Her name doesn't have to be Tahani Al-Jamil. Her name can be anything. So I give on certain negotiation points. And then they say to me, um, we'll go looking and what about if this person were this kind of person or what if this, because I, oh, I also wanted her to be unknown. And so this, she was like, well, what if, what if it's a known quantity? Like here are some actresses who might fit the bill. And I was like, okay, I'll consider those actresses. So we, instead of saying like, here is a incredibly specific blueprint for a seven legged chair <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> this height and exactly this weight and has exactly these dimensions and looks exactly like this, go find that thing. It's sort of like, here are the aspects of this that matter to me. And then because they're so good at what they do, I mean, in, in that case, they literally found the exact person I imagined, which mm-hmm. is amazing. I didn't think Jamila Jamil existed on Earth, and they went and found her. But, you know, we read for Stephanie Beatriz's character, for Rosa, that character's name, I think Amy Santiago's name in the script was like Melissa, and, and Rosa's name was like Jen or something. <laughs> like, we wrote very generic names because we said we don't care what ethnicity they are, and we don't care whether they're tall or short or whatever, they just hear the things. Rosa had to be tough and like gritty and funny in that particular way. And, and Amy had to be this particular kind of person. And those two women ended up both being of Latin descent, but we saw actors of every shape and size and mm-hmm. ethnicity. And so it's great for Allison and Ben because they don't have to narrow their search so much. And it's great for us because we get to see people that we never in a million years thought would work on the show that might work. Mm-hmm. And the perfect example is Mark Evan Jackson came in and read for Charles Boyle. Mm-hmm. So Charles Boyle, Joe Latrulio's character, is like a beta to Jake's alpha, right? right? He's like, he's the sidekick who like thinks Jake is amazing and incredible and he was like described in this very specific way. Mark Evan Jackson is, isn't that. Mark Evan Jackson is taller than Andy Samberg and he's sort of natally dressed and he's very precise. He's more of a Fraser Crane type guy, but he was so funny. We just kept bringing him back. We just kept like I was like I just love this guy. Like I, I just think he's great. And he didn't get the part, but because we allowed the search to be very wide, we ended up with this actor who has now played an incredibly important role on that show is Ray Holt's longtime husband Kevin, and he's also then appeared on Parks and Rec as a lawyer. And he's also obviously a huge part of The Good Place. And like we never would have found him if we hadn't been open to the idea of like all sorts of different kinds of people Mm. for the role. You've worked pretty exclusively in, and I'm going to use a term here that listeners may not be familiar with, so I'm going to define it really quickly. You've worked pretty exclusively in single camera sitcoms, which are filmed like a movie, films, you know, you don't have the audience there laughing. You do have a multi-camera show you're working on coming up, uh, but multi-camera is the ones that have the studio audience off to the side and they're laughing, and uh, you think like Cheers, Friends, those, a lot of the classic TV shows are Mm -hmm. in that format. I'm wondering if that's just an accident or if you think there are certain things multi-camera does well that single camera doesn't and vice versa. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, the multi-camera, ironically, set in a bar to bring (laughs) us back to that (laughs) conversation. It's called Abby's. It's coming on sometime this uh, in 2019. We don't know exactly when yet. Yes, I had never done it before. Most of my favorite shows before I started working in TV were multicam shows. SNL is sort of a multicam mm-hmm. show, even though it's short form and not long form, I guess. But there are plenty of things that it does really well. I think the vibe of it is really fun. Mm-hmm. I totally get after we, we made 10 episodes of this show, Abby's, and after just being there for those 10 episodes, like I kind of get it. Like... It's really fun. It feels like you're basically just doing a play for people mm-hmm. and doing plays is fun. And the cast has to like have all of their lines like perfectly memorized. You can stop and start over and we often do, but like it's not strictly speaking ideal, mm. right? <laughs> In a way like a single camera, someone forgets a line, who cares? You're The only cost to you is the like, you know, little bit of like digital videotape that you've now used up which is, you know, costs pennies. But you shoot multicam shows in one night, oh, in night in our case. And so you everybody is like on their game mm-hmm. and it's really fun. And when it really clicks and the audience um, really gets into it and they laugh or they have reactions, live reactions to jokes and to emotional moments, like I kind of get it now. Like <laughs> I never really got it before, but I kind of get why it's fun. And who knows what's going to happen with the show. I don't know what, what it will look like once it airs or anything, but... I used to think when I watched multicam shows, like, oh, man, like, they're really, it's all fake laughter, you mm-hmm. know? Like, it sounds so fake, and 
then they're just juicing the laughter. And I can tell you now from personal experience that mostly what you do in post with multicam shows is remove laughter yeah. mm-hmm. because Perfect. live audiences laugh. They're really happy <laughs> and they laugh a lot at stuff and they laugh at things that aren't even jokes really sometimes just because like they're enjoying watching a play mm-hmm. and I kind of get it. Like I found myself really kind of happy and delighted whenever I was watching the show be made because it's Natalie Morales who's wonderful and Neil Flynn who's great and Jessica Chaffin, all these really funny people and I really just enjoyed watching them do live theater essentially. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they, there's there's plenty to, to like about it. And and I think that the, I mean, obviously the thing that single camera does better still is you can tell bigger stories. Like mm-hmm. if you can't tell huge stories in multicam. It's impossible. You're, you know, 99.9% of what you shoot is in one set. So there's no scope. There's no real scope or depth in terms of plot lines or stuff like that. But there's also a, an immediacy and a sort of reality at some level to watching live theater be taped that I don't think single cam can really hold a candle to at some mm. level. I went to a, a sitcom, a multi-camera sitcom taping of a show that had famously bad reviews. I'm not going to name it on air, but you can find it if you look for my Grantland archives. <laughs> um, and I was laughing the whole time. Like the actors yeah. were having, you know, were really giving it their all. And like, and I watched it on TV later and was like, that was, you know, not a good episode of television. Well, that happened all the time at SNL. Like mm-hmm. anytime, it was very funny to watch because anytime anyone would come to a taping, after the show, when I would go find like a friend or family mm-hmm. member, they'd go, that's the best show I've seen in like 10 years. And you were like, no, it's not. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. just you were there. You were in the theater and you saw like when like whoever Robert De Niro popped up to do a cameo, like it blew your mind because you're sitting 50 feet from Robert De Niro. Like, and it's really exhilarating to actually be watching something taped live. I literally quit baseball. Mm-hmm. I was a baseball player in high school and I quit baseball because I went to see Shakespeare in the Park with a friend of mine and we saw a production of Othello with Raul Julia and Christopher Walken. Mm-hmm. And I was so blown away by Christopher Walken in that role as Iago. I had to choose every year in the spring. There was a fall play and a spring play. So I would do the fall play and then in spring I wouldn't do the spring play because I would play baseball. And that year I quit baseball because I was like, I, that's better. That's mm-hmm. like whatever that is, I want to be closer to that. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if that was a good production of, I mean, it, it sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, Julie it does. It does. Walken, but, but like uh, seeing that happen live in front of me was sort of life-changing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's not life-changing necessarily to see a sitcom be made, but it's super fun. Yeah. And and so I, yeah, I, it used to happen all the time at SNL. I think most of the people who go to live sitcom tapings and then watch the episode on TV are probably a little bit freaked mm-hmm. out by how different the experience is. <laughs> <laughs> is this also how you're saying you're going to be playing Iago in the park? Next That's time? right. Oh. I, I'm mounting my own production. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're coming into the end, which means I get to ask one more good place question. Great. It has a high, larger visual effects budget than most comedies, yeah. I'd imagine. Last week's episode had five Darcy Cardins, six Darcy six, Cardins running yeah. around which seems like a nightmare to produce. But I do want to ask, what is a tiny little insignificant thing on on this show that you spent an inordinate amount of like visual effects time on that you didn't expect? Oh, there's so many. Mm-hmm. Um, I will preface this by saying that the visual effects director, supervisor, guru, whatever you want to call it, is a guy named David Neednagel, who I try to shout out every time I can because he is saving us from ruin mm-hmm. on, a, on a daily basis. He's saving us from making something terrible. And he does a a, a ton of this stuff in-house and is so good at it and does it in such a cheery, happy way. The show is unproducible without him. I'll just, Mm -hmm. that's the simplest way to put it. But what is most wonderful about him is that he has a great sense of humor. And so he understands how important it is at times to spend a ton of time and money on something that is completely insignificant that no one (laughs) is ever going to see. The most recent example was in the multiple Janets episode, I wrote as a just a tiny little, like a little grace note that when Stephen Merchant enters the frame, he's holding a coffee mug that says existence's best boss. That was a nod to Michael Scott's world's best boss mug from The Office because Stephen and Ricky created The Office and whatever. It's just a tiny little thing. So Stephen Merchant, unbeknownst to us, is left-handed. Mm-hmm. So when he picked up the mug and held it, the words were obscured mm-hmm. because they had designed it for someone who was right-handed. And so I said to David D. Nuggle, I hate to do this to you, but is there any way that you can digitally slide the words existence's best boss from this side of the mug to the other side so that we can read it on camera? And he was an office fan and he was like, totally got why it was a little thing that people would care about. And he did it. 
And I was like, was that okay? Or was that, uh, was that hard? And he, for the first time, literally in the history of the show, he went, yeah, that was really hard. <laughs> I, was like, I, I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. It doesn't matter. It should, you should not. And he was like, no, 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 it's fine. But yeah, yeah, it's really hard. Uh, so there are a thousand things like that. Yeah. When in the episode where the judge has the sort of showdown with Michael and Janet on the bridge, the third episode of this season, and Janet has been on earth and she's tried to conjure up all these objects and and then they kind of tumble out of her like a printer queue, she says, that's suddenly printing all the unprinted documents. That pile of crud, we went through a million iterations because it had to serve a lot of masters. It had to block the judge's view, but not so much that we couldn't see her and blah, 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 blah. But David was like, I'm going to bury some Easter eggs in there. And so in that pile of crud, there is, for example, the 128-ounce soda from the Soda Tax episode of Parks and Rec when <laughs> Leslie was trying to get Paunchburger. This restaurant was selling 128-ounce soda. There was also, I can't remember, there's at least one other Parks and Rec reference in there. But that's exactly the kind of thing that he'll do just for fun. Yeah. To like, He'll spend too much time and money on things like that just because it's fun to do. Well, we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. I'm going to ask you those now. Great. And the first one is, what's the last pop culture thing you saw? Movie, TV show, album, book, just video game sometimes that you took in and what did you think of it? Uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Mm-hmm. And right. I loved it. Yeah. yeah uh, what did you like about that movie? Uh, well, first of all, like I love it when comedians are given roles that allow them both to be funny and to prove that they're great actors. Mm -hmm. You know, usually, uh, or at least in the old days, it was like Jim Carrey, you can either be funny or you can be really deadly serious. And I love that that's the perfect role for Melissa McCarthy, I Mm -hmm. thought. I just like, she's still so funny, but just like heartbreaking, just utterly heartbreaking. And uh, and such a wonderful portrait of a, a, a woman who is like confronting the essential unfairness of her situation on earth mm. and fighting back. I, I thought it was great. Mm. Loved it. The next one is who's the writer living or dead that you've learned the most from that you've never met. Uh, oh man. I have no idea. Um, it might be, this is recency bias, but it might be Tim Scanlon mm. who wrote the book, what we owe to each other, right. which is sort of a fundamental book for, good place. I don't think that's actually true though, because that book's really hard to read. And I think I only understood about 20% of it. <laughs> so, um, it's either that or like Graham Greene maybe because mm-hmm. Graham Greene's books are to me are like, there's not a single wasted sentence. Yeah. Like he's, his economy. What's your favorite of his? Uh, well, <laughs> I think it's our man in Havana. Right. That book is so funny and good and has such a tightly scripted plot and like you can read any of his books in like uh, three days because they're all like 200 pages long. John Le Carre is the same way, by the way. Mm-hmm. I feel like John Le Carre, his prose styling is amazing, but also you just, there's not a single wasted sentence. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good, going back to our discussion of economy and comedy, like I think that's really important. Yeah. And finally, here for the month of December, what is the best gift? you've ever gotten uh, can be like when you were a kid, you got a toy you loved or like you can, a lot of people say my kids are my best gift and that's just, oh, that's yeah. lame. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I would never say that. Um, <laughs> uh, when I was, I want to say like seven, mm-hmm. I had a big wheel mm-hmm. and I left it out in my front yard at Halloween and I got stolen. Oh no. And then that Christmas, my parents got me another big wheel. And mm. I remember that's about as happy as I, I think I ever was, like, for a gift. Like mm-hmm. I, Because I, I think when I was seven, I don't think I understood, like, a big wheel is, like, $49 and easily replaceable. Mm-hmm. And so I, when it was gone, I was sort of like, that's it, it's gone. And then when I, I remember getting a new, like, then my parents wheeling in a new big wheel for me, mm. being like, oh, my God. <laughs> I have a big wheel again. That's I. I, I mean, I'll, it's one of those weird like childhood memories that you'll just have crystal clear for the rest of your life. Like I remember that feeling and and just of pure elation, pure mm-hmm. childhood elation. Mm-hmm. And my kids. No, I'm, kidding. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. And, and and you mentioning Tim Scanlon made me think of this. Has working on the Good Place made you a better person? Do you think? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's also made me like more annoyed all the time. <laughs> like I um, it has if only because I've like learned. I've learned of like what these things mean instead of just like having a vague idea of like, you shouldn't litter. Like, and now I know why kind of, and also just it's forced me to just 
the thing that about Chidi's character on the show is real, which is like if you really care about this stuff, you can fall into this endless trap where you're mm-hmm. paralyzed. Like mm-hmm. I, I was recently asked by a charity, a 501c3 organization that, that I have a connection to to make a donation at the end of the year, as we all are every year. And I immediately launched into this kind of like intense calculation of like, well, would this money be better spent elsewhere? Like, can I justify doing this? Like, it's not um, buying malaria nets for kids in West Africa who are dying of malaria. Like, this $100 that I'm going to send to this organization or thinking about sending to this organization could be used to save a number of human lives. Like, mm-hmm. how can I possibly justify? And, like, you fall into that. And then eventually, like, you get hungry and it's time for lunch. And you're like, I'll just give them $100 <laughs> and you move on. <laughs> but I think that as annoying as that can be sometimes, I kind of like it. I like that I that I spend a couple minutes thinking about this stuff before that I never used to spend because isn't that good? Like, I think mm-hmm. that's good to, like, I think it's good to just be forced to consider the weight of your actions before you make them, even if it's for even if it's for 10 seconds, yeah. just to think about what am I doing and, and how is it affecting other people? I think that's always a good thing. Well, The Good Place is back in January. Uh, previous episodes available elsewhere on the internet. <laughs> uh, and uh, Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Office, all these shows, you should watch them. Mike, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Holy forking shirt balls. This is I Think You're Interesting. And I am the host and executive producer, Todd Vanderwerf. Our producer is Bridget Armstrong. Our editor is Griffin Tanner. Our executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Kerry Clements. Our audio engineering and studio are thanks to the Rebel Talk Network of Los Angeles. And our recording engineer this week was Eric Wood. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher. Doing so gets the word out about the show, helps us continue to get great guests. You can email me, Todd, at Vox.com. You can email the show, ityi.podcast at Vox.com. And for the last time, we're putting together a show of our greatest hits to run over the holidays. So if you have some favorite moments from I Think You're Interesting History, please email them to us or bother me on Twitter at TVOTI. That's TVOTI Tavoti. We're going to be back next week with our last show of the year. We're going to be talking to somebody from the world of arts and culture, media and entertainment, somebody who I think is interesting. But until then... You probably don't have enough points to get into the good place, but uh, I don't either. So maybe we can hang out together after it's all over. 